drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Georgie Gardner and welcome to Drive, a future women podcast about women on their way. This episode is brought to you by Uber Eats, where safety is a top priority, from ongoing delivery partner education programs to contactless delivery. Safety never stops. Each week, I speak to accomplished and interesting women about their enviable careers, as well as how they manage to make time and space for themselves. From work and life advice to travel and wellness tips, I find out what engages them and, where possible, pass on their shortcuts. There's no doubt that 2020 will be remembered as a watershed year the year the COVID pandemic shut down the world and, for better or for worse, the pace of life was turned on its head. For some, it has of course meant job loss, economic hardship, anxiety. Others have been ushered into working from home, maybe homeschooling kids, maybe denied the opportunity to have physical contact with loved ones, particularly the elderly. It's been really tough. It's been enormously challenging and all while grappling with no known end point. And that, that I reckon is the overwhelming theme, certainly when I chat with friends or colleagues or strangers at the supermarket or the dog park, we all accept that we have to adapt and we all accept that we have to play our part in stopping the spread of this virus. But for how long? It's difficult now to envisage a world post-COVID I long for the day where I get to read a news bulletin that doesn't include a story related to coronavirus. But the experts are assuring us that that time will come. There will be an end point. And with it, hopefully, we'll regain some semblance of certainty, some semblance of control over the pace of our lives and how the next chapter plays out. My guest today is an award-winning Australian actor, producer, writer and director, and she has actively chosen her own pace at various points in her life, possibly most notably after experiencing rejection. Rachel Griffiths, welcome to Drive. Thank you so much. Rachel, most people would be very surprised to learn that you were turned away twice by NIDA. I've heard you say that In hindsight, NIDA wouldn't have been right for you, but how did that rejection feel at the time? Yeah, it was quite devastating, actually, because I think I was at that point where I, you know, I just didn't know if I was good. You know, you've got the dream, but I was still looking for that external validation. And I certainly didn't get it from, you know, my mother, and nor do I think, you know, we should indulge children who want to be artists. It's a really hard path. So I wouldn't say to my children, you're brilliant, you'll make it. I would say it's a really hard path. You absolutely have to love it. And I would kind of advise doing a similar thing, like follow your heart, but only to a point that you are growing, you know, but if you get to the point where 
you know, following your heart is not allowing you to grow as a professional or as a person because you're not getting the opportunities, dentistry is a really great uh, profession. (laughs) So I'm the same. So, yes, when I was rejected from BPA twice and NIDA twice, it was really hard for me to kind of find my self-belief despite that, you know, that very clear message that I didn't cut it. Teaching was your side hustle, wasn't it? Teaching was my backup and I'm from a long line of teachers. So when I made the decision to leave Melbourne University and go and pursue drama, I went to a teacher's college so that, you know, would be my backup. And I just, while I was there, committed at the end of that to kind of commit to acting until I was 30 and then review. So if I hadn't been successful, I hadn't made it or I was frustrated, you know, if there wasn't a place for me in the industry, I didn't want to be in, you know, never been, but rather than kind of question it constantly and be kind of eaten, (laughs) you know, eaten alive by the rejections, I just said, I am going to do this until I'm 30 and then I'll review. So at 30, I had an Academy Award nomination and I thought, oh, okay, I think this has turned out okay. You've taken on so many diverse and interesting characters. I'm wondering what your process is in accepting a role. Is it knowing that you'll nail it? Is it choosing something to stretch and challenge you? How do you go about making those decisions? I am not like Nicole. I really admire Nicole Kidman. She will choose roles that she doesn't think she can pull off. So she goes for that stretch. Whereas I really have to believe that I am the best person for the role, that I can see myself in that role and value-adding in a way that I can't see other actors having the same kind of insight into or something, Um, which sounds arrogant, but it actually doesn't happen very often where you just go, yep, no one else can do this, you know, and that really fuels you fighting for that role. So Muriel's Wedding was definitely, you know, reading Rhonda was, the first time, and I screened her for lots of stuff, you know, and I'd always had that, you know, she's beautiful but not intimidating, incredibly hot but women like her, she's confident but not annoying. I'm just like, I don't know who this fucking bitch is. I don't know anyone like this, you know. <laughs> um, and some really pretty girl will get it, you know. So I think because Rhonda was an outsider and it was a very – early role, I think, of, of really fleshing out what the outsiders experience life as, both Rhonda and Muriel. And I just kind of connected to that. And I was convinced that no one else could do that role. And it gave me just incredible confidence. I had to do, you know, three auditions. And it was, you know, that conviction. I had that also with Hilary and Jackie. And I had it with Brenda in Six Feet Under. Mm. And then other roles, you kind of think, look, I've got a pretty good take. They may or may not like that take. Do you know what I mean? I went for something recently that I really loved. I thought I did a good test for it. It was for a big American miniseries with, you know, big A-list cast. But in that regard, you know, I thought my take was really good, but they may have gone for a much more kind of idiosyncratic kind of reading, you know, if you like. But I'm better now at kind of saying that's what I do with the character and rather than fit in necessarily to somebody else's perception of it, you kind of go, that's my take. And what a great place to be in, a stage where you can do that. Has there been a, a well-known role that you've missed out on and would have loved to have had a crack at? 
The biggest one which I thought I was the best person in the world to play was, um, and it would have been a really big breakthrough role for me, and it was kind of quite disappointing, was in The People vs. Larry Flint, which was a script I absolutely loved, directed by Milos Forman, and it got down to me and Courtney Love, and Milos sent our audition tapes to his best friend, who was the president of Czechoslovakia, a Nobel Prize-winning poet. And uh, I believe that the president of Czechoslovakia went with Courtney Love. I thought while it being a very, you know, noisy choice, she did not kind of, uh, I think I would have done a better job. A deeper, I think I would have gone a bit deeper. Yeah. But it was funny, somehow she saw the, (laughs) somehow she saw the audition. I remember we were in a toilet together at some award show and she was like, oh my God, it's you. She goes, she's like, your audition was amazing. I honestly thought I didn't have a chance. And I'm like, how did you get it, Courtney? (laughs) Um, And I don't know how she got it. But uh, there you go. That was definitely uh, one that got away. So having missed out, you know, the people versus Larry Flint, I then went into television and uh, was offered Six Feet Under. And it was, you know, one of the best scripts I'd ever read. And it meant that I'd have to go to America for six months and everybody was like, oh, my God, why are you doing television, you know? But I, it was the best work I was being offered. And what I discovered in that was that television really suits me and that it's an extraordinary opportunity, particularly for women, to do characters of much more profound depth and agency over time. And I also discovered that I love working with the same people for five years mm. and emotionally you know I'd been traipsing around the world doing films you know for six weeks here six weeks there and you know it was a very kind of lonely and quite destabilizing life for me and I was at the point where I didn't know how I'd ever you know be married or have children you know living this life doing television really ended up, you know, grounding me, improving me enormously as an actor, but also affording me the opportunity to have the kind of stability where I was able to, you know, marry and sustain a relationship and have children and, you know, pay for them. (laughs) So good fortune, bad fortune. Well, it offered you that stability and continuity, didn't it? So that you could have the career and you could have the family, have things going on on the home front that you desired as well. Yeah, and I I really hadn't articulated for myself how difficult and lonely I had been. You know, you get really close to your little crew and your actors, you know, on a moor in Yorkshire and then six weeks later you're back in LA hustling for jobs and you know, all those years where it looked like I was having a you know fabulous international career were actually quite lonely. You know, it didn't suit me. You know, I like to be grounded. I like to go to the same guide of you know by my stake every week. I like the normality of that. And you know, I think growing up and living in Melbourne until I was. You know, 24, I did have a long period where I, you know, that that little community is something that, you know, nourishes me and it's very difficult just kind of traipsing around the world and trying to maintain your close relationships and those intimacies, you know. 
you're regarded by many in the in the entertainment industry as a trailblazer, as someone who has successfully combined career and family. And you've spoken quite candidly about how you and your husband, Andrew, have made that work. Many women grapple with combining the two, and I reckon put enormous pressure on themselves to excel at both. What are your thoughts on that? Have you got any advice for women on that front? It is very difficult. And, you know, my own childhood wasn't easy, which I think, you know, if you come from a childhood with a lot of stress and, you know, my mother was trying to keep, you know, a house together with three children after, you know, my father, who was a very difficult man, um, tempestuous and um, not a good family man, that, you know, it's even harder because I think if you come from that real solid modelling of what it can look like, you're, you know, trying to to do a double act in a way. So I, I think if you haven't come from seeing a parent do it mm. and, ha- you know, to do it with ease and collaboration and stress, you're inventing it also for the first time. For me, coming back from America, what was great is when I was in Los Angeles, I'd say that period was kind of a peak parenting, you know, moment. And I think we've all stepped back from that, you know, kids doing after school activities every day and the kind of mummy wars of who's got the best packed lunchbox. And um, I think we are a bit more free range here. You know, that hyper helicopter parenting, which I observed, I just did, you know, I just didn't know how to do it because, you know, my brothers and I were feral. We were doing lilos down the Elsterwink Canal, you know, in storms. (laughs) So, fabulous. You know, it's been hard for me to find what a responsible but not an anxious parent is. And I think in America, I was an anxious parent because I couldn't quite find you know, a parenting style reflected that worked for me. Mm. And then I just hit a kind of wall about two years ago where I just stopped trying and um, I stopped that helicoptering. I put more kind of faith in my own children's ability to find their own way a bit more. Mm. Stopped trying to keep the house at a certain point of functionality, especially coming back from America, you give up the housekeeper, you give up the nanny, you know, Um, and in order to come back, you know, it was quite a pay hit for us. So I was really struggling with managing a house, which I hadn't done when I was working my 67-hour weeks. Other people seemed to, I'd just come home and the house looked like it was ready for a photo shoot. Mm. So it was quite stressful, you know, to get organised and, um, Marie Kondo's helped me a lot there, I have to say. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be right back after this message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is the perfect companion for Aussies on the go. They're for you at home, at work or on holidays. Uber Eats has more than 20,000 restaurants offering fresh and delicious meals at the click of a button. Thanks to Uber Rewards, more than a million Australians are already earning loyalty points on every order on Uber Eats. Download Uber Eats from the App Store and celebrate local restaurants today or explore the new grocery option to get your essentials without visiting the supermarket. Uber Eats, connecting what matters. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. 
There's a price point to suit most budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Rachel Griffiths. Rachel, I've heard you say that there have been times when you've come home after completing a big project and you felt a little like a visitor. And that really resonated with me. I know when I left breakfast television after about nine years and found myself at home and in the thick of my family's frenetic morning routine, I remember feeling in a sense, like an outsider. It's not to say that I wasn't welcome and I certainly wanted to be there, but we all struggled a bit initially and I really related to you using the word visitor. It's possibly an unexpected feeling for a mother, isn't it? Oh, yeah, my husband finds it really hard when I come home and start doing stuff and organising stuff and I'm in the kitchen, you know. So there is a, a thing there and you know, I, I do wonder if, you know, is this what men who travel a lot feel like when they come home? Is this something, you know, uniquely as women and, you know, traveling women or women who are working really long hours grapple with? Is it something that all parents do? I mean, what's happened over COVID for me, it's not just that I've been home, but the children kind of know I'm probably going to be home, you know, well into next year, I think, given, you know, most of what I do is been shooting overseas, is they just started to kind of go, oh, she's still here. Oh, I'll give her a hug, you know. So I'm so, <laughs> I can see through my children's eyes that I am seen as a reliable figure in, <laughs> in the household, not just the person to give the Nike list, you know, as I'm packing the suitcase, yeah. you know. Yeah. These are the Nikes I want, Mum. You know, I'm being starting to be seen as somebody who is present and slow enough to listen to issues and feelings that are happening. Mm. And it's making me somewhat kind of horrified that it takes time, I think. You know, children can't just grab you and go, Mum, I'm having a really hard time with Ellie. She's being really mean. You know, it just takes those things you're cooking and you're baking. And one of the girls will say... Do you ever have that thing where when you've got the party coming up and you've got your different friendship groups that you're quite anxious about how to bring them together in one party, you know? Mm -hmm. But it just takes space for those intimate exchanges to happen just as it does, you know, with our friendships and in our marriages. And I think we have been at peak busy and peak active and I hit two years ago, you know, the children were being signed up for another freaking sport. And I just said to Andy, you know, there is something on every night out of school. We now can have dinner together one night a week. And he grew up with brothers. They were scheduled in sport from morning to night, as you probably would if you had three boys, you know, mm. in eight years. But I was like, but that's just me getting in a car and driving here. And we had to really kind of talk about, the impact that all this busyness has in terms of sucking out the space for the opportunities to connect with each other. And what is the payoff between my girl's future AFL career versus family life? They, of course, don't know any different, but how do your kids deal with your public profile? 
it wasn't until I came back that they came to kind of realise that I was famous. And then, look, I was pretty quiet for a few years, really. I, I would say that, you know, before I did Ride Like a Girl and Total Control, you know, and had to do a tremendous amount of press for that, I was still a bit, you know, off the radar. Thankfully, they haven't had to deal with too much kind of personal impact on that. But, you know, one of the reasons I sold, you know, my beloved beach house in Palm Beach was I was up there with my girls and, you know, it was very secluded, you know, tiny little cottage on a cliff and nobody could, you know, see in. It was... um just a beautiful, humble, but very spiritual little place. And uh, I think it was the first or second summer after I came back to Australia and um, I had just had a shower and I walked out, I think unusually in a towel because often there I just walk out with my undies on and this big drone just came, rose above the cliff and just hovered and my girls were inside and then Adelaide came out and just said, what's that? You know, and I was like, oh, fucking paparazzi. And there was a local guy out there who, um, you know, would really stalk uh, anyone that was up there. And it was such a kind of gross invasion and it really, really frightened Adelaide. And, you know, we went down the next day And I think there was another incident where I was out in a in a wetsuit with the girls with Adelaide on the board, and that photo ended up in the Herald Sun. And then she stopped wanting to go to the beach, and you know the whole kind of point of being up there was just you know being feral and you know away from that kind of self conscious cityness and. And uh, she got very paranoid and basically didn't want to go to Palm Beach anymore. So that was kind of a really heartbreaking decision. Mm. You strike me as a very active person. You're always thinking, creating, reading, contributing. How does Rachel Griffiths unwind? Where do you find your stillness? Look, I have a hyperactive brain. When it's positive, it's extremely positive. But... um. You know, I'd be lying if I said that same hyperactivity when shifting to, you know, an anxiety kind of space is, you know, something I probably haven't really spent enough time of my life. Laundry is an answer that I can give you. I love doing laundry. Oh, my God. I've found a fellow lover of putting on a load of washing and hanging it. it out. I love hanging out a load of washing. I love hanging it and using my pulley to, you know, I've got my drying racks. I've, I've got my tally on in there. Sometimes I use it, sometimes I listen to the radio. I think it's the sound of the dryer for me. Wow. It's just this warm, reassuring hum of the dryer. <laughs> and I feel like if the dryer's working and the washing machine's working and the clothes are folded, you know, everything's going to be okay everything's all right in the world. Mm. Once on air, I shared with breakfast television viewers that I loved hanging out a load of washing. And I talked about the modesty hang where you hang the smalls behind the towels. And it opened up this whole national conversation. It was just hilarious. People ringing in and sharing their stories about their methods of hanging out washing. (laughs) 
I think there's a, this new kind of sport. Did you? I was listening to a piece on on the ABC. So there's a sport of washing, and you get penalised if you use two socks per pair of undies, or if you've hung them in a way that they can't dry. But the modesty hang is lovely. Like to me, I don't know where you got that from. If you came up with that yourself, but to me, that that sounds like those lovely housekeeping tips that have always been passed on between grandmother and daughter or mother and daughter. I think it's apt that COVID has brought a lot of this to the fore. We've slowed down. We've had time to reflect. And I'm wondering what you're taking from this period. Well, I think, you know, the world is probably divided into two, you know, those that are not lying awake all night wondering how the keep their children in school or pay the mortgage or stop the car being repossessed, are having those thoughts. And I imagine, you know, there would be literally millions of people lying awake at night uh, trying to solve problems that, you know, very much beyond their control. And, um, you know, I've been saying for a long time, you know, we've been talking about anxiety and mental health and, you know, a lot. Speaking to that is anxiety and mental health cannot be separated from one's economic realities and the inequality, housing insecurity, you know, rent increase insecurity. So the rise, you know, we're all talking talking about this terrible rise in anxiety. Well, I've been saying for years, I think that is a reflection of the shrinking of the safety net. And be kind. I think we're going to return to a more kind position as my grandmother would always talk about the unfortunate and we just lost that word Mm. you know we became so sure that there was a moral inferiority into people who were homeless or a moral inferiority to those people that couldn't afford to pay their rent it was because they didn't work hard enough or they hadn't read the self-help books to overcome whatever childhood trauma. It's mm. as if a self-help book can overcome what so many people experience as truly rotten childhoods. So I hope that that a compassion comes from this where there's more of a there but for the grace of God go I, mm. you know. Absolutely. I'm going to finish with just a few light questions. What are you reading? I don't do small talk very well. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we love you. But I'm wondering what you're reading. Have you been reading more? What are you cooking? What are you doing on the home front? My girls are cooking, which is absolutely gorgeous. I'm, my husband's cooking up a storm. The thing is, I'll try to cook something and my husband will cook it better the next night. He's very competitive. Join the club. So I did very bad muffins the other day and then better muffins uh, turned up. Um, (laughs) I'm really interested at the moment in reading the experience of women outside my white middle class framework and I'm probably quite late to that. I haven't done a terrific amount of fiction reading over the last 20 years because I'm always having to read scripts. Mm. So The Yield's by Tara June Winch. So she's in my laundry ready for my next my next one. As you sit there with the hum of the dryer going on in the background. The hum I love of it. The dryer, yeah. Could I suggest that's where you're at your happiest at the moment? <laughs> in the laundry? I'm at happiest in the kitchen by the fire when the girls are cooking. We've never been closer to having that kind of gurgle of a family chatter 
in the way that I've dreamt of having, if that makes sense, in COVID, because people aren't rushing and looking for the car keys and can't find their wallet and are late for this and have you got your sandwich packed and and all those transactional, you know, so many conversations within the family before COVID, that what COVID's revealed was so transactional. Have you done this? Do you know where this is? When's that due? Have you done your room? And what this time has allowed us is I hear the quality of the conversation within the family. It's a bit my fantasy of, of going, I think this is what, you know, family life is meant to feel like. And maybe I'm not such a shit mother after all. <laughs> you know. That is a beautiful image to leave us with. Rachel Griffiths, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for joining me on Drive. Thank you so much and thank you for also sharing and I really look forward to face-to-facing soon. Thanks again for listening to Drive, a future women podcast in partnership with Uber Eats, produced by Fancy Films. I hope you can join me again on Wednesday for Drive and if you could, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. See you then. Thank you.